0: Hey there, my name is Roy, and I am the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly. We're so glad you've joined us today online, and we're glad that uh, wherever you are, if you're sitting at home, that you've taken some time today just to worship God and and to be able to dig into His Word a little bit. Well, today we're not in the middle of a series. Today is a little bit of a uh, one-off message that we're doing called Hope in the Dark. Today I want to start by speaking a little bit, just straight from my heart. And in a moment of complete transparency, uh, as many of you have found in this season, and it's not really over this, this, this pandemic season, but I think many of us have found it really, really tough. I know I have. Now, when the pandemic hit the church and, and it shut down churches for the first time in like it, it, anybody could remember, maybe since the Spanish flu, it, it wasn't initially as hard as I thought it would might be. Now, it was hard, but for different reasons. It, it, first, it broke the routine a little bit, which was not such a bad thing. Suddenly, we were changing things on the fly. Uh, you're, you're watching one of them right now. We're doing an online experience that we weren't doing before. Pastor Justin, our our youth pastor, and I, we had to get a little more creative and think outside the box, which, again, we somewhat enjoyed it. I got this sense, even, that God is going to use this moment— To shake up the church. And we were producing things online, figuring out still how to do things about about how we're going to do prayer, how we're going to connect with people in different ways, how do we connect our youth, how do we connect our kids. And we were predominantly at the time, because the church was shut down, we were working from home. Now, that adds to itself its own challenges. Because we were juggling schedules. Pastor Justin has a newborn baby, Felix, and and I'm at home. I had two two kids that are uh, teenagers that they're doing schooling from online. My wife manages a bank. She's doing that from her kitchen table, and we're all trying to figure out how to work around each other. And now, on the outside, you might have thought, well, the pastors are at home. This must be like easy for them. But most pastors will tell you, not just myself, but most pastors will tell you, we never had to work so hard, ever. Uh, the Days off just didn't happen. We were constantly thinking and trying to figure things out. Uh, hours were blurred. We were working all kinds of hours during the day. As pastors, we were trying to minister in a way that we never had before. When having said all that, at the same time, we were concerned, concerned about the safety and the health of our people. When someone would go to the hospital, we couldn't go there to be with them. It was heartbreaking. And on top of that, Justin and I, we're both, we're both dads, we're both husbands, sons. Uh, we, we're, we're thinking about our families at the same time in the midst of all that, just like you are. And we're trying to minister to a congregation from a distance. And there were concerns about how is this whole thing going to affect the church? What will the future hold? Uh, can we keep it together financially? These are the thing, the kinds of, things that uh, many pastors were having to deal with. On top of that, many pastors were facing a bunch of different opinions. We all had an opinion in the middle of all of this. And there were those that wanted the church open ASAP. Anything but giving, anything but opening up right now was reckless and giving into fear. And then there was those that wanted the church to wait a little while. And anything but doing that was reckless and giving into pressure. And so there was... People write in every opinion in the middle as well, and I gotta admit, it consumed my thoughts sometimes twenty four seven. Are we being too cautious? Are we being too reckless? Are, and I'm asking God, help me in the board make a wise decision. It's not based in in fear, but not based in emotions, but not, that's not based on pressure from either side. And so, along the way, I got the I got the sense speaking to some of my my colleagues, other pastors, that many relationships in different churches across North America, between churches and boards, boards and people, people and pastors, the, the relationships were being fractured. And there's a thought that perhaps some of those relationships have been so fractured that they're irreparable, and that there's been some studies or some articles that have predicted that there will be an exodus of pastors out of ministry in the next year, leaving ministry together or retiring early. So when the adrenaline all wore off, it was a tough season, but when the adrenaline all wore off, it was challenging, but at the same time, it was exciting on figuring out how to do ministry, reaching people we'd never reached before. Uh, People online, we were seeing people that we'd never talked to before. But after a while, fatigue kind of caught up. And while there was small blips of discouragement, there was still this underlying excitement that we were going to come out of this stronger. But by June, if I'm honest, I was tired. I was mentally, emotionally, maybe even spiritually exhausted. And it was at the, that point that I considered taking a vacation. And just when I was about to, The government, out of nowhere, kind of announced that churches are welcome to be open again. So it was like, vacation's going to have to wait. And we waited a few weeks until we felt like, as a staff and board, we had a solid re-entry plan. And we returned. And that in itself brought on a renewed energy. For those that were in the building, they kind of felt it. And and I felt re-emerged at the time, but exhaustion set in again. And for the first time in, I don't remember how long, I was able to take two weeks vacation. And it couldn't have come at a better time because I got a chance to just get away, spend some time with my wife, Jen. Uh We got a chance just to kind of disengage from everything that was going on around us. And we just really got to relax and enjoy being with each other. And at the end of two weeks, I came back and I felt this renewed sense of passion, this renewed sense of excitement, and also some perspective. See... I'm proud of our church. We were able to keep going in the middle of a changing world. Uh, We were able to stream our services. We were able to put them on Facebook and YouTube. And I'm proud of some of you, some of you that are watching right now, because you figured out how to view them. You subscribed, you commented, you interacted. You never thought you'd be techie, but you are. We were able to keep prayer meeting going through Zoom. And I'm sure some of you were intimidated, but you figured it out because you believe in prayer. And many of you joined in to begin, and naturally the numbers started to dip a little bit, but we've had an incredible faithful group that has continued to pray right through the summer. Eventually, after a number of weeks, Pastor Justin and I, we kind of found a rhythm on doing church online, but it didn't come without some pain. Uh, Justin trying to sneak devotionals in between his infant son Felix's naps, me trying to do a message in my basement, my daughter Janelle being my tech team, and uh, there were sometimes it was five, ten takes before we got one that I was happy with, or sometimes we had times where my phone would run out of memory, or uh, my phone rang one time. I was filming it on my phone, and my phone rang, which I was almost done, and it cut it off, and we had to do it all over again. But we, we figured it out, and you watched... You interacted and you made the best of it. You're still doing that right now. Along the way, we we tried to minister to our community from a distance. We bought meals at a local pizza place where we bought uh, 50 meals. And because we felt, and we communicated this to our, our community, we felt like in the middle of this, no one should have to worry about where their next meal comes from. So we wanted to be able to help, even though we couldn't be right there hands-on. We, we did a food bank drive through touchless drive through we, we had people drive up and donate and, and when the community responded in an incredible way and we were able to help stock up our food bank. We believe in them so much. We ran an online scavenger hunt for kids at Easter and many of you checked in with each other and you prayed for each other. You delivered food to each other. Honestly, I'm proud that I get the privilege of pastoring at APA financially a pandemic didn't change your faithfulness as i said before financially we're not having to dig ourselves out of a hole we actually it actually allows us to be able to plan and dream as normal our board has been incredible these this the stories of friction between pastors and boards and people that's not an apa story our board has stayed level headed they've they planned for the future and then had to adjust and then adjust again as things changed, all the while not acting in fear, but with an expectation that God is going to use this time to advance His church. And all the while you've sent notes and texts of encouragement, You've given sac- sacrificially, you've volunteered when you could, you've, you've wore masks at times you didn't really want to, you've re- respected the restrictions that are placed upon us, and you've just kept your eyes focused on the mission at hand. APA, Osley, you are a special church. I, I know some of my colleagues have had a rough go, which makes me feel like I'm one of the blessed ones. And I know when I look back now, I know that one of the areas that contributed to some of my mental and emotional fatigue has been watching the world events. It's been tough and in the news, and, and social media has been tough. Watching people with differing opinions fight with each other on Facebook, watching the racial unrest in the in the U.S. and around us. Watching people fighting about whether they should wear masks or not wear masks. Fighting about politics, U.S. and Canadian. Seeing people promoting conspiracy theories. Watching a lack of grace between people. Seeing people more concerned about being right about their point on a topic than the person that they're arguing with. In the midst of it, it was tough to watch and... I couldn't help but think of Paul's words. The apostle Paul in the midst of all, all of this in Romans 12, he writes this, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep for those who, with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil and do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. See, we've been so divided individually on numerous issues. Again, it's tough to watch. And What Paul's saying here is that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you should be aiming to live differently. But Paul didn't come up with this on his own. This was not modeled for Paul when he was growing up. Paul was surrounded by a Ro- by Roman, Greek, Jewish culture as a child. There was a way things were done. Might was always right. If you had the biggest army or the most resources or the most power or the most goals, you always won. This is why Rome ruled. Rome had the biggest army, and therefore, they got to make the rules. And in Paul's world, women had no value. Children had no value. And mercy? Well, mercy was for the weak. So to hear Paul say later on in his life, Bless those who persecute you. Weep for those who weep. That sounds a lot like mercy. But where did he get this? Well, he got it from the teachings of the one that he had devoted his life to. Jesus. These teachings would change the world, but no one knew it at the time. Let's back up years earlier. If we could transport ourselves, if I could take everyone there, we could transport ourselves right into the setting. It's approximately 30 AD, and the Jewish people had been waiting for a Messiah, uh, a, a Messiah when Rome, powerful Rome, was in charge. Uh, they let the rome let the jews do their thing they let them go to the temple but it was under a careful eye there was no doubt who was ultimately in charge there's no doubt who was letting who do what because rome always had the final word and so while the Jew, jews operated under roman rule they had their eyes always on the hills waiting for this long prophesied messiah A leader who would be powerful. A leader with charisma that would fire up the troops and fire up the masses because there was always this anger bubbling below the surface as the Jews felt persecuted in their own land. So they knew all it would take is someone that would inspire them to create an uprise and take back their nation and defeat Rome once and for all. They need a a military general of sorts. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, there's a thought that maybe, just maybe this is the long-awaited Messiah. And his disciples are waiting. They're waiting in the shadows. They're waiting. They've watched him do miracle after miracle, and they've been great. But they're waiting for him to make his power play, his powerful move, and and become the powerful king that he's been hinting that he might be. So as they wait, they're waiting for him to give this step into his throne, give a speech that will fire up the people, that will start and spark a movement. And he gives the speech that Paul's letters are influenced by. He gives a speech that will change how you and I live today. He gives a speech that would do exactly what the Jewish people had always hoped for, put an end to Rome's oppression. So he sets up on the side of a mountain, People come from all around and gather, and the disciples are thinking, okay, here we go. Do this, Jesus. Come on, it's go time. Let's fire up this crowd. And he begins. He begins by like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I can only imagine them off to the side going, okay, guys, that's, that's kind of a weak start, but let's give him some time. He's warming up. Then he goes, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay, guys, it's still a little early. Like, let's let them get into it a bit. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, meek? Jesus, I think he used the wor- the wrong word here. Like, Let me grab a dictionary, meek, meek, meek. Okay, uh, patient, long-suffering, or submissive in disposition, or nature, humble see i don't really think jesus that was the word that you meant meekness meekness is not going to overthrow the roman government uh we we don't get our land back through meekness so but jesus goes on he says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy and they're like okay matthew john honestly where is he going with this? This is a little bit embarrassing. Like maybe he will, maybe he'll do a healing or maybe he'll do that water into wine thing or something because I think he's losing the crowd right now. Blessed are the pure in, the, in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Peacemaking? Really, Jesus? Like, peacemaking is kind of what got us into this situation peacemaking is why we can't even really call ourselves a nation. Because I don't know if um, you've been watching what's going on around us, but the Romans don't exactly bow down to peacemakers. He goes on and says, Blessed are those who are are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you insult people, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, Who were before you? So thinking, okay, let's get this straight. We're looking for poor in spirit, sad, meek, righteous, merciful, pure, peaceful, persecuted, insulted people. Like this is who we're signing up for the to be part of our army. This is what this is our prerequisites to get into this. And it didn't make sense to them in that moment, but it would because. This was the speech that would inspire the early church to change the world. Now, if we could, we'd fast forward to 64 AD. This is roughly 30 years after Jesus has, has, has been crucified and, and gone to heaven. In 64 AD, we're in the city of Rome, and Nero is the emperor of the time. And one night, a massive fire breaks out and it, it, for nine days. The fire burns, and when they, when it's all said and done, two-thirds of Rome has burned. And rumors begin to circulate that it might have been Nero, the emperor, that actually started the fire, because now he can rebuild Rome in his own image, and, and it doesn't help when he starts building his own temple right away. And so scholars are divided whether Nero started it or not, but Nero definitely heard the rumors and knew the public backlash would be more than he could stand. So to take the pressure off himself, he convinces the public that the the fire was actually started by this growing number of Christians in Rome. And so now there's an order to kill all the Christians for their involvement in the destruction. And so anyone who's known to be a Christian now is going to be rounded up and killed. And so some are crucified on crosses, Some are brought to an arena that is named Nero Circus, where Christians were made of made sport of by feeding them to the lions and wolves and many many other horrific things. And it's during this time that is believed that Peter, one of Jesus Jesus' uh, uh, disciples, was crucified and Paul was beheaded. It was an awful time to be a Christian. Now, if you want to talk about corrupt governments, because that seems to be one of the topics of the day, if you want to talk about conspiracy theories, there was definitely, there was no conspiracy theory. There was evil (coughs) behind the scenes, and Christians were the targets. Paul's dead, Peter's dead, and Rome has seemed to have won again. But their master, their savior, didn't teach them to spend their energy on spreading fear. He didn't teach them to spread gloom and doom about corrupt governments. No, he had equipped them with a better plan, a plan that was way more effective. That They had the good news. They had the gospel that was so much better than any bad news. And because of their belief in the good news, Christianity didn't die. It actually spread. So fast forward 45 years later, 45 years after Peter and Paul's execution, Christianity is not dead. In fact, it's still alive on the fringes of the empire, and it's bigger than ever, and it's spreading like wildfire. And Rome doesn't have the stranglehold that they once had, especially on the edges of the empire. And so they come to this conclusion that when things go bad, that the gods must be angry. And what would make the gods angry? Well, it has to be the fact that we're not sacrificing to them the way we once did. And so they decide it's got to be the Christians who refuse to sacrifice to their gods. And so the emperor makes an edict that all Christians should be rounded up and arrested and then forced to sacrifice to the gods and to the emperor. And so he sends a message to a man named Pliny the Younger. Now, Pliny the Younger was a Roman governor in charge of what we would call today Turkey. And he's given this order to round up these rowdy Christians and arrest them. But Pliny's a little bit confused because he doesn't really notice the Christians, for one, and he definitely hasn't noticed anyone causing issues in his region. But his emperor has ordered it, so he figures, I better get on it. But before he does, he he investigates a little bit to, to see what he's dealing with because he decides he's going to send a letter back to the emperor with his findings. And so this letter has survived history. You're not going to find it in your Bible. It's a part of our ancient history, and here's what he finds. This is what it says. He says, the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn. So these Christians would choose a day, most likely a Sunday, and they would gather before dawn. Well, the reason they gathered before dawn is because there was no Sabbath in, in the Roman Empire. Every day was a work day. And so in order to meet and worship together, they would have to go do so before dawn so that they could go to work later. Now, I spend a lot of this time talking about how incredibly special our church is. But I guarantee you, if I change the service time from Sunday at 10.30 to Monday at 5 a.m., I guarantee the text I get would be not so encouraging. But this is how committed they were. This is how in they were. This is how changed they were. Pliny the Younger goes on to say in his, in his a letter to the emperor, he says, they, they, uh, they meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly to a hymn, a hymn to Christ as to a God. Well, like now I can kind of see where the thread is. They they sing. Woo. They, they, they sing to Christ as if he's actually God. See now the reason why they would sing is because many people at that time couldn't read. And if they were able to read, there was no Bible per se at that time. So many, maybe, many people would have maybe fragments of some of Paul's writings or some of Peter's writings, and and they may cling to that, but many people couldn't couldn't read so they would sing. That's where they, how they would reiterate their theology through poems or chants or songs. And then he goes on to say, and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their t- trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. So he's like, they take an oath, but it's not to overthrow the empire or take or attack with violence, they, they, they take an oath that they're not going to commit fraud, or steal, or commit adultery. They're not going to falsely falsify their trust. In other words, they're going to say what they're going to do what they say they're going to do. And, and it doesn't say this, but Pliny the Younger's got to be thinking these kind of sound like good people. They, they actually kind of sound like the type of people I would want in my region. And what we see is this group came together, bound by the good news of a savior that died for them, came back to life, defeated death so that they could have eternity in heaven. As a result, they got together, worshiped him and committed to each other that they would treat each other with respect and dignity, not just them, but everyone else around them. It's almost in the midst of the darkness, Jesus says, here's how you respond in the midst of corruption here's how you respond. When the expected response is doom and gloom, maybe everyone else around you is just all negative about what, how to respond, here's how you respond. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. See, this would be their greatest weapon. Eventually, Rome's grip on the world would be gone. Christians would change the culture around them, not by getting on a box and screaming about corruption, not by invoking violence, by being a light. Go back to the mountainside. Jesus has just rhymed off this list of, that is countercultural to the qualities that one of his, that is countercultural. And he lists all the qualities of what his, he wants his followers to be, the ones that will grow his church. And he finishes that same speech by saying this in Matthew 5.14. He says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead they put it on a stand that gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. How do you shine light in the dark? You love, Jesus says. Like I've loved you. See, Christians refused to abandon the sick because they weren't afraid of death. Christians would take care of widows. Widows had no value once their husbands had died because they couldn't work. They couldn't make a living for themselves. But Christians didn't see it that way. They took them in. They, they supported them. They, they, they brought them in and took care of them. In the Roman Empire, if a parent didn't want a a child, and, and you didn't have to justify your reason for it, because it could be anything. It could be uh, they have a birth defect. It could be, well, that's not the gender that I was hoping for. It, it could be that it was born of an illegitimate uh, relationship. Uh, if there is no moral issue with taking this child that you did not want, taking them to the edge of the city near the forest and just leaving them there. Nobody would question it. Nobody would judge you for it. But the Christians, they would set up camp close to there. And anytime a child was left, left there, they would watch for it because Christians believed that every life was made in the image of God. And so they would take these kids in and they would care for them like their own. It was the Christians that taught that all people were created equal, no matter what your gender is, no matter what your social status is, no matter what your ethnicity is, all, all were equal in the eyes of God. See, in this culture, women were second class and and children were worthless. And your family name actually determined whether you were destined to lead or you were destined to be led. And so while Jesus was teaching that blessed were the merciful, here's what the classical philosophers of that time were teaching. They were teaching that mercy was not governed by reason at all. And humans must learn to curb that impulse of mercy. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered. They also taught pity was a defect of character, unworthy of the wise and excusable only in those who had not yet grown up. So in light of this philosophy, people looked at Christians and what they were doing. And at first, it was appalling. I mean, you're so weak. You, you worship a crucified rabbi. But it didn't take long before this countercultural religion, people found it merciful. They found it empathetic. They found it compassionate. And ultimately, they found it appealing. And it wasn't long after that before this appealing religion became contagious and it spread throughout the empire until it could no longer be contained. Now, if we could go back to the time where Nero was executing Christians, and we could find some of those Christians that were on the run, and hiding, and scared, and probably perhaps, perhaps tearful, I don't think they'd believe us. But wouldn't it be something to be able to say to them, this city, Rome, which you're running from, this city, Rome, and where which your Savior Jesus has been outlawed, even mention of his name has been outlawed, one day, this city will have more crosses affixed to its buildings and structures than any city across the entire world. And those crosses are not going to be a sign of of intimidating execution, but they're actually going to honor Jesus and the sacrifice that he made on that cross, the same Jesus you've been asked to deny. And I don't know if they'd believe us, but to be able to say, people will come. I know that you've heard Peter and and Paul have been been executed, but people are going to come rather than rather than mourn their loss, they are going to honor them and come to churches built in their honor on the sites they were executed. And one day, and it's not that far away, but Christianity will be the religion of choice in Rome. And it's all because you, the good news you proclaimed outshone any bad news you could have spread. And 2,000 years from now, that, that Roman Empire, the empire that they say Rome never dies, the empire will never die, it lives on forever. It will die and Christianity will live on. So church, that's our cue. I know right now at times it feels dark, and I don't mean to downplay your personal circumstance, but it's easy to be swallowed up by what we believe to be corruption or despair or conspiracy theories. But Jesus told us where our attention and our focus and our energy needs to be. The bad news, the virus, the governments, they'll come, they'll go, and they will fade but the good news is eternal, and we need to hold to that. We need to bring hope, and our voices need to be so loud about the good news of Jesus that it drowns out everything else. So come on, church. We need our, our towns, our communities, they need us. In the midst of the dark, we need to be the light of the world. We need to shout the good news louder than anything else that, we, that come off our lips. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of uh, some of our personal circumstances, in the midst of what we see on TV, what we see in social media, um, God, it's easy to be caught up. It's easy to, to go to the, the, the dark places. It's easy to uh, get cynical at times. It's easy to be skeptical at times. But our world right now doesn't need more cynicism. It doesn't need more skepticism. It doesn't need any more bad news. That doesn't mean we turn our blind eye to injustice, but God, we need to proclaim the good news louder than anything. Our world needs hope. You are that hope. And so we need to spread it as far as we can. I I look at the early church, Lord, and there was darkness all around them, and yet they clung to, to your name. They clung to the good news. They refused to deny their faith, and they changed the culture in the midst of that darkness through not by just the words they said, but that their actions backed up what they said. In the midst of darkness, it's when we when we lead with compassion and love, it's, it's that that will change people's hearts and people's minds. And so, Lord, I pray that we be the church that is essential in our communities by our actions of love. I ask this in your name, Lord.